Well, as we're going to think about the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to read today from Revelation 22. So you've been able to chart with us all the way from the very beginning this Bible overview, and today we reach Revelation 22, and we're going to read from verses 1 through 6. So Revelation 22, and we're going to begin to read at verse 1. Not that awfully long ago, we looked at the book of Revelation, and this is John writing this, and we break in at chapter 22 and verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servant the things that must soon take place. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Well, you might find it helpful if we have uh, our Bibles open at Revelation 22, uh, those verses that we looked at. uh, And indeed, as we've said, we're we're looking at heaven today. Just the other day, I was in the car and the radio came on and I picked up some sort of dramatization, some sort of uh, radio uh, drama. And there was a girl uh, speaking on it and uh, she'd just been bereaved and she was speaking about the effect it had on her. And she said something like this. You know, she said, you spend your whole life trying to find meaning, pretending there's a story when there really isn't. But death has a way of making you see things as they really are. There is no story. That's what she said. And it struck me because it's exactly the opposite of what we've been thinking about over these months during the summer. We've been looking at the fact that there is a story, there is a great big story that tells us what's going on in our world and in our lives. And we've been looking at this story. It's God's story. God is gathering a people for himself. And by his grace, we can be part of what he is doing. We can belong to his people. It's a story that begins in the deepest recesses of time when God created our first parents, Adam and Eve. We saw how he created them in Eden and uh, put them in this perfect world to enjoy his presence. They were, as we've said before, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. But that situation didn't uh, persist very long. Adam and Eve sinned. They didn't want to live under God's rule. They made their own rules. They were rebels, and uh, God ejected them from the garden. All sorts of things happened. Death entered the world. Uh, They didn't enjoy God's blessing. They left the garden. And and yet, even in the midst of that rebellion, God promised to put things right. One would come who would crush the serpent's head, and he would go right where Adam went wrong. 
As time went on, God called Adam to be his man. He promised him a people and a place and a blessing. And and as this story goes on, we see that those things happen sort of, but it's not like Eden, and it's really not perfect. Still sin reigns, still people fall far short of what God intends for them. Everything feels quite broken and frustrating. And then eventually Jesus comes, and he supremely is God's man. He's God himself. And he comes into this world. Clearly, he's the snake crusher. He destroys the work of the devil, and he pays for sin. He carries the sins of God's people to the cross, and there he pays for the penalty that was upon them. Uh, Even though he was perfect, he died a sinner's death. And he rises again and ascends to the Father's side. And his people, the church, take the message of Jesus across the world. And we we almost sort of think, well, that's great, but what happens now? Because actually now that story has caught up with us. We are in that period where Jesus is risen and the news about Jesus is going across the world. But we know that everything is not yet finished. More people need to hear about Jesus, of course. But we know that everything's not yet right. We are not fully experiencing the blessings of the kingdom that Jesus arrived to bring. The full experience of being God's people in God's place uh, with all of his blessing is not yet ours. And that's what we're thinking about today, the end of the story. Where is God taking us? And to help us with that, we're looking at these verses in Revelation. Now, we've looked at Revelation a couple of years ago. Those sermons are still on our website. And if you were here then, you might remember that Revelation is a series of visions that cycles uh, between the time that Jesus came and when he will come again. And each one builds on the last. And, and so here, right at the end of the book, we're at the most climactic point of the book. It's full of symbolism, of course, but in the most amazing way, it pulls together so many of the threads of the Bible's story. We've, we've said, and you've heard me say it uh, today, that we're looking at this story with the help of, I think it's Graham Goldsworthy's little phrase, that God's kingdom is him building his people in his place under his rule and blessing. And, and we're going to see that here as we look at this passage through that lens. But, but let me just, before we jump into that, say, why does this matter? Why does it matter that we know where the story goes from here? Well, do you know, I, I definitely believe that this has the potential to transform your days and my days like just about nothing else. If we really knew what lay ahead for God's people, and if we really believed it and allowed it to shape our lives, it would change our living. It would change our dying. We wouldn't be worried about what happened uh, to us in this life half as much because we would know what lay ahead for us in the next. The things that we are worried about today would shrink if we believed this fully. We'd still have to deal with them, but we would deal with them knowing that there was something fantastic around the corner. And, and, and you know, you look at the, the lives of the apostles and you wonder, how did they face the things that they faced? 
They were, like Paul, they were beaten and jailed and shipwrecked and, and eventually so many of them killed. They were living under tremendous pressure. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So, so here's the question. Do you want to go through life finding that the worst thing that happens to you feels like a light and momentary trouble? I know I do. Well, the answer to getting to that place is fixing our eyes on what is unseen, on what lies ahead, on what God has revealed for us. That's how it worked for Paul. That's how it will work for us. So, we're looking at God's people in God's place. First of all, let's think about God's people. We've got this little diagram of the three. Uh, here's the next slide, I think. There is God's people in God's place under God's room, rule and blessing. So, first of all, God's people. Uh, Revelation 22 it describes this marvelous future, but we've got to point out that it is for God's people and God's people only. You see, a couple of things that show us that. Verse 3 of chapter 22, it speaks about his servants. Verse 4, it speaks about the Lord's name being on their foreheads. And back in chapter 1, verse 27, it says, nothing impure will ever enter it. That's God's glory, God's kingdom. Uh, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's something that's really, really clear. There is a marvelous future ahead, but for God's people. In fact, if we read the rest of Revelation, we see that there's a great division that runs through all of humanity, and there is a dreadful future for all of those who oppose and reject God. Indeed, it is out of that great mass of fallen humanity, this, which we are a part of, of course, that God calls his people. So, so, in other words, if we're Christians today, we're not just God's people, we're his redeemed people. We've come from somewhere else. We've been called out of something else. We have been rescued. And if you're here today or you're listening today and you're thinking, well, you know what? I, I don't really know where I stand. I don't know how things will work out for me. Um, let me just point out to you that all of these descriptions that we are given of God's people re revolve around Jesus Christ, Lamb's Book of Life, His name on their foreheads, His servants. So the key thing is coming into a new and different relationship with Jesus. Do you know what? Everybody has a relationship with Jesus. We don't often say it this way. But everyone has the relationship of Jesus as their judge. He's the one that God has appointed to judge the world. So we have a relationship with Jesus already, everybody naturally. That is that he's our judge. But we need him to be also our savior. So we need him to rescue us. And that's the key question that we've, we've got to wrestle with. Uh, be, be sure that, that, that some sort of tidied up life and nod to God every now and again will not do that. Some sort of vague belief in the man upstairs is not what's in mind here. This is a, this great future 
depends upon being part of God's people and his rescue of his people through Jesus. And we've got to say that as we read the scriptures, God is a, Jesus is a willing rescuer. So, so if you're, you're wondering where you are, what's to become of you, you just got to talk to him. You've got to tell him that you need rescue. Tell him that you need to know him as your savior. Bible says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a promise that you can build your life on. You know, that we, we end at the reading with um, the angel saying to, uh, to John, these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, he's saying, do you know what? You can bank on this. You can build your life on this. You can bet on this when everything else seems to be crumbling because this is the truth and this is the story. We've got to know Jesus as our redeemer. So that's the first thing. This fantastic future is for God's people. Secondly, it's a fantastic future in God's place. Remember where the story began? It began in a garden called Eden. It was a beautiful and perfect place, though it was not everything God intended for his people because they had work to do in it. And then, of course, they were ejected from that garden and the way back to it was barred. And as the Bible's story continues to unfold, God continues to meet with his people, and he does that in ways that echo the garden. He does that in the tabernacle and the temple. And as we read of those buildings, that tent and that building, they are constructed in such a way as to remind us of the garden. So there are precious stones used in the temple that they were the same as the ones in Eden. There are lampstands designed to look like a flowering tree of life. The temple had carved fruits and, and flowers in it. In other words, it's, it's a reminder of the fact that God once walked with his people in the garden. Remember when Jesus came, you can follow this theme of the garden right through. Just before he goes to the cross, he goes through a great trial in a garden in Gethsemane. He was the second Adam. We said that a few weeks ago. He would go right where Adam went wrong. And unlike Adam, Jesus triumphed in the garden as he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. But it's here in Revelation that we see the garden again, fully and, and more beautiful. And, and we're going to see how that's the case. First of all, you notice that there's a river. The angel showed me the river of the water of life in verse 1 of chapter 22 of Revelation. In Eden, there's a, a river that flows out of the garden. But here, there's a river of the water of life, and it throws from the throne of God and from the Lamb. So that's not two thrones, it's one throne. We're to imagine something like a bench with the Son at the right hand of the Father. And, and this theme of a, a flowing river symbolizing God's abundant blessing has been right through the Bible. Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Ezekiel 47, picture of the river flowing out from the presence of God in the temple, bringing life to all that is dead. And Jesus, of course, said to the woman at the well, <clears throat> if anyone comes to me, I'll give him a living water, a spring of, of, of living water flowing up from within him. He will never thirst. Now, I don't know if you've wondered, uh, here we have this throne, there's the Father and the Son, but where's the Holy Spirit? We believe in a triune God, don't we? And, and, and the truth is that the river is the representation of the Holy Spirit, his work flowing out from the Father and the Son, bringing life. So you see, in Revelation, there's a river, just as in Eden, 
but it's better. It's fuller. There's also a tree. There's a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. There are two special trees. There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the one that God told Adam and Eve not to eat from. But there's another tree, the tree of life. It's quite mysterious. Christians have different ideas of what it was or represents. And was it something that somehow sustained Adam and Eve and, and caused them to be immortal? Was it symbolic of the fact that God had a, a created and brought life? Was it something that had they proved obedient to God's commands, they would have been invited to eat from it? I sort of suspect that that's the case. Uh, Nancy Guthrie has an excellent little book called Better Than Eden, and she suggests that in Eden, its fruit was not yet ready. And so, uh, they would have eventually been invited to eat from it. But in any case, when they do sin, God banishes them from the garden and cuts off the way to that tree. Genesis 2, 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, maybe you think well, that's a bit tough, but it's fair, but it's tough. It's actually better than fair because it looks like had they taken from the tree of life, somehow they would have been locked into their rebellion, as it were, and not able to have been redeemed. So they're banished from Eden in order to be rescued. And here then in Revelation, at the end of the story, there's free access to the tree of life. You notice it's on both sides of the river. It's hard to picture, isn't it? Uh, maybe it's, it's not literal, of course, and maybe we're meant to even imagine an orchard, even more than one tree. But it's incredibly fruitful. It bears fruit every month, not just once a year, but every month. So there's always fruit in this tree. And the point is, it's, it's abundant. It's, there's free access. There's enough for everyone who will come. So this tree is like Eden, but it's better. You notice it says the trees are, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And you, and you think, well, why do you need healing in this perfect place? Well, it's not that. It's, it's that the leaves are a constant reminder of the healing that's been brought to the nations. The nations of the people of God are here. So it's constantly saying, there's a constant witness to say, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. We'll never forget that in heaven. So you see what's, what's happening. We're heading to a perfect garden. But it's actually more than that. It's also a city. Don't have time to go into that. Verse 1, it's also a city. It's a, it's a garden city. So the heavenly city of chapter 21 of Revelation has come down and made this abundant, verdant, populated place full of God's people. You see so what, what a vision. You know, sometimes we sing darkness defeated and Eden restored. But it's much better than Eden. God has the best of the best of the best in, in, in waiting for his people when he gathers them into his place. And, and if uh, you are, are like me, you've had the experience of of being away from home, and if you, you like where you live, you, 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 you come home, and maybe it's been great to be away, but you just great to be home, and, and you, you open the door, and you go, oh, it's just great to be here, great to be home again. And, and you know, the truth is, we've never really been home, because this is our ultimate home that we're reading off here. 
And, and when we walk through, as it were, the, the door of heaven, we'll feel it, we'll know it, we'll just go, oh, it's great to be here because now I'm truly home. You've got to believe this. It'll change your living. God's people in God's place. And then finally, just in a word, under God's rule and blessing, because there we will fully enjoy God's blessing. And more than anything else, the blessing of God is not permanent golf or motorbikes that don't need to be filled up. It is him himself, the throne of God, and on, off the Lamb will be in this city, and his servants will see him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the night, the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So this is presented, you see, as the pinnacle of what we've got to look forward to. God will be there, and we'll see his face. We'll not have to res relate to him at a distance anymore. There'll be no shadow or shame. We will welcome his, his light as we are fully known and loved without limit. We're, 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 we're a little scared of God, aren't we? we, we no matter how long we've been Christians, we, we, we draw near to him with a certain amount of fear. And part of that is a healthy fear. And part of that is a sense of we know what we're like. And we're not really easily ready to come into his presence because we're frightened about being known. But there we'll be fully known and only full of joy, loved without limit, with no shadow. When I stand in glory, I will see his face and there I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. You know, Ray Ortland, we sometimes quote Ray Ortland. He had a little mantra in his church and he just got everybody to, to learn this. And he said, it's got three parts to it. I'm such an idiot. It's a good church to belong to, eh? There's your first part of your creed. I'm such an idiot. Second part, the future for me is incredibly bright. It's what we've been looking at. And the third thing, and anyone can get in on this. I'm such an idiot. The future for me is incredibly bright. And anyone can get in on this. This is the big story. It's our big story. So your work and your family and your failures and your dreams and your fears, they all sit under this. Because if you love Jesus, this is where you're heading. Your future is incredibly bright. And you can get in on this if you're not in on it already. Let's pray for a moment together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have something wonderful for us. We find it hard to hold on to, hard to allow it to shape our days. But we pray that you will cause us to believe your word and to build our lives on it, that it might change our living and our dying and every moment in between. And Lord, if we don't know you yet, help us to know that we can. 
and draw us to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.